Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Second uh, Samuel chapter six. So, if you have a Bible, uh, if you would mind, wouldn't mind turning there to Second Samuel chapter six. Second Samuel six says this: David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, thirty thousand, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Amminadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Amminadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David, went all, uh, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that playlist is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord inside the, to the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Mishael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said how the king of Israel honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Mishael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over the Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor." And Mishael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I believe that the greatest tragedy of the last two months is not the number of people who have died from COVID-19. It's not the number of people who have become sick. It's not the economic devastation that has been wrought by the shutdowns that have occurred across the country. It's not the invasion of privacy by the government as and as some believe, an overstep of the bounds of government. I don't believe that it's any of these things. I believe that the tragedy of the last two months is that as this tragedy, as this crisis has unfolded, we've become even more divided than we were before. 
I mean, at the beginning, I had some hopes that maybe this would be something that would bring us together as a country like 9-11 or World War II and they, where there was these great cataclysmic events that brought the country together. And I had hopes that maybe that would happen, but those hopes have soon been dashed and we're more divided than we were before. And it's almost like we live in two different worlds. Many Americans are afraid of the virus and what uh, that could mean for their families. And some are even afraid to leave the house at all for any reason, yeah, even to go to the grocery store or, or, or do those kind of things. Uh, others believe that it's overblown and that it's these lockdowns have been uh, occurring needlessly. And uh, those who want to reopen the economy, the critics would say they don't care about people's lives. And uh, those who want to shut down the economy and keep, keep it closed uh, would say that those people don't care about people's lives because they don't care about people's livelihoods and the lives that are being destroyed because of the economic devastation. And, and so it's almost like we live in two different worlds and you can watch the news and you can hear all these different statistics and graphs and viewpoints and opinions and it can just drive you crazy. And... Today, I'm not going to give you answers because, honestly, I don't have the answers. I, I'm not going to give you my opinion because, honestly, you've heard a lot of opinions. You can turn on the TV and you can hear a lot of different opinions. So you don't need my opinion. But I would, what I do want to encourage you with today is that even though these things are going on in our country, even though there is chaos and disorder, we don't have to live there. We can find rest. We can find quiet from that place of discord and place of chaos. And I believe that this passage shows us how we can find that peace, how we can find that quiet in the midst of chaos. And so I'd like to consider three questions based on this text as we think about this question, how can we find quiet in the midst of the chaos of what we're experiencing? The first question is, what can heal us? What can heal us? Okay, so a little bit of background for this passage. After King, Saul, King Saul's death, uh, King Saul's son Ishbosheth has kind of warred with David for control of the kingdom of Israel, and uh, David is kind of king of the southern part of Israel at this point, and Ishbosheth is the king of the northern part, and they're just warring for control. Finally, after a time of war, David defeats Ishbosheth, uh, conquers the city of Jerusalem, and so then he wants to make the city of Jerusalem kind of the military and the spiritual capital of Israel. And so he's anointed king. He then has a key military victory against the Philistines, and then in the passage that we're looking at today, David orders for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought up from Baal Judah, where it was being housed, and brought into the city of Jerusalem. Now the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, it was a box, but it was more than a box. It was a place where God's presence 
dwelt. And so bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem was in essence bringing God's presence into Jerusalem. And so David calls for that ark to be brought into Jerusalem. And it says in the text that, we're, that we just read that as it entered into Jerusalem, the people respond with shouts and cymbals and the lyres and harps and tambourines. And they're overjoyed that the presence of God is coming into the city of Jerusalem, that the presence of God is among them. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that is something that we can hold on to no matter what happens. We have the presence of God that dwells inside of our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we can find refuge in knowing that no matter what happens in this world, we have that Holy Spirit living inside of us and we have the presence of Christ with us. At the end of the book of Matthew, at the end of the Great Commission, Jesus reminds his disciples, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 8, 10 to 11, Paul talks about God's Spirit living inside of us, and he says this, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. And I believe that our response to God's presence should be similar to the response of the Israelites who when the ark, the presence of God entered into Jerusalem, they responded with rejoicing. They responded in worship. And if we realize the gift that we have, the gift of God's presence with us, it ought to make us rejoice. So what can heal us? What can heal us is the presence of God. I remember when I was a little kid uh, talking to my dad. My dad uh, was a believer. I grew up in a Christian home. And I'll never forget him talking to me about prayer. And I remember him telling me that no matter what happened, I could pray whenever I wanted to pray. And I remember being amazed by that and thinking to myself, and I, I might have even asked him some of these questions. So does that mean I can pray when I'm at school, when I'm supposed to be you know, learning in class and the teacher says that I should be quiet and listen. He said, yeah, you can pray then. Uh, so can I pray when I'm, I'm supposed to be asleep, when it's my bedtime and I'm supposed to be going to sleep? Yeah, you can pray then. I, I just remember being amazed by this reality that no matter what was happening in my life, no matter what anybody told me, I could have access to God. I could pray whenever I wanted to pray. In the current climate that we're living in, I think that in many ways we feel like we're out of control. We feel like there's not a lot we can do to change the situation that's around us. And essentially that's true. However, we have access to the most powerful being in the universe. We have access to the throne room of grace. And we can call out to God anytime, night or day, anytime we're in need, anytime that we want to call out to him, we can call out to him. And his presence lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. And so no matter what we face, we have that presence with us if we're believers in Jesus and we can hold on to that in the midst of trials when we feel like we're out of control, when we feel like the world is just chaos and we don't know what to do. So what will heal us? What will heal us is the presence of God. 
Second question we see in this passage is what will destroy us? The text tells us that the oxen stumbled. When they stumbled, Yuzah put out his hand to steady the ark of God, and as soon as he touched the ark, he immediately was struck dead. Now, as we read this, it seems like the punishment is a little bit harsh. I mean, after all, it seems like Yuzah was trying to do the right thing. He didn't want the ark of God to fall, and so he just reached out to steady it. But there's more that's going on beneath the surface. Uh, First of all, we know from the scriptures from Numbers 4 that the Levites, those from the tribe of the Kohathites, were supposed to be the ones who carried the ark of God. Now, first of all, it's unclear whether uh, Yuzah and his brother were Kohathites. So we don't know that they were actually following the law in that regard. They may or may not have been. We also know that when, this, when the, the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, that it, from Exodus chapter 25, that it was to be carried on poles rather than on the cart. And so where do we see this cart idea coming up? It came from the Philistines. And so they're adopting the method and the mode of the Philistines and doing what the Philistines did when they captured the Ark rather than following what God says. Further, Yuza had great familiarity with the Ark of God. It was housed in his hometown, and he was responsible with his father and brother for taking care of it. And so he would have known the prohibition that he was not supposed to touch the Ark. But they became careless, they became cavaliers, they became familiar with the Ark of God. And so they started to disregard God's rules and God's commands. But what's interesting here is that David, the one who initiated this and and, and caused it to come about, as well as Uzzah, they seem like they have good intentions. David was trying to do a good thing in bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem. Uzzah, it seems, was trying to do a good thing in stopping the ark from falling to the ground and being desecrated. And so they're It seems like they have decent intentions, but they forgot that they were dealing with a God who was holy and not to be trifled with. And they got careless, they got cavalier, and it caused them to sin. So what can destroy us? What can destroy us is doing sinful things even if we do those things with good intentions. And so in the midst of the climate that we're living in, we need to be vigilant to hear God's voice and obey God's voice. So what are some examples of how we can get turned around? We can get turned around when we fail to love those around us. And we say, we're just trying to be safe. We're just trying to be careful. And I'm not saying to be foolish or to disregard uh, common sense. But we can get to a point where we see other people as enemies. And we get to a point where we're just kind of self, we're just interested in self-protection, where we don't care about what's happening around us, that we're just focused on ourselves and keeping ourselves safe. And I don't think that's something of God when we're focused on ourselves and not other people around us. We can get to a point where we disparage and demonize those who think differently than us, than rather than praying for them and speaking the truth and love to them. We can get to a point where we turn to bitterness and anger rather than leaving vengeance to the Lord. 
I used to play basketball, and I used to play in two different settings. Uh, I used to play in the league sometimes Tuesday nights and pick up sometimes on Thursday nights or, or, or whatnot. And for the league, everything was very organized. Uh, the rules were pretty clearly st stated. There was a score clock. There was a time limit. Uh, you knew when the, the, court, the, the half would end. You knew what the score was. There were referees. And so it was pretty organized. The pickup was not so much. With the pickup, the teams were always different. You just shoot up for teams. Uh, the score was kind of varied. Sometimes you might play to 7 or 11 or 15 or whatever. And there were no referees. Uh, there was no real set time frame. Sometimes the games would go on for a long period of time, sometimes not so much. And what I found was that when you were playing, there tended to be a lot more fouls in pickup than there were in the league. There had tended to be a lot more fouls when there was no semblance of order, there were no referees, when everything, everyone was just kind of hanging out and playing than when there was referees and rules and score clocks and time limits. And, and I think that kind of represents two different time frames in our life. When we think about that league with the order and the expectations and the referees, I think that's kind of like normal life as we're living our lives. We live our lives and things go more or less orderly, more or less expected. Things kind of make sense to us and we're maybe careful to follow God's will during those times. But then we get to a crisis and it's kind of like that pickup basketball game. We're not maybe even sure what the score is. We're not really sure what the rules are. And so we can get to a place where we get careless and we get cavalier. And so we're focused on all of these other things rather than the things of God. And in the process, I believe that we can, even if we have good intentions, neglect God's word. Because we're so focused on the chaos rather than being focused on God and, and God's word. At Duke University, um, in one of their hospitals in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, a number of years ago, in November 2004, the maintenance workers were doing repairs on the elevator, and they took the hydraulic fuel from the elevator, and they put it in these big drums. Now, somehow, I'm not sure exactly how, but somehow this got into the disinfection uh, station, so the place where they dis would disinfect all the instruments for the surgeries. And for some reason, the people disinfecting the instruments thought that these, this hydraulic fluid was the disinfecting fluid. And so they cleaned all of the tools with the hydraulic fluid. And this went on for two months, spanned about 3,800 surgeries, and none of these instruments were sterilized, and they're literally being dipped in uh, petroleum and hydraulic fluid. And nobody really knew what was going to happen, what effects that would have on people's bodies. And of course, the hospital's chief assured people that they had the best intentions. They said, we want to give uh, people the message that we care about our patients. And that was probably true. They did care about their patients, but it didn't matter when they were using hydraulic fluid to sterilize the instruments. Leo Ekloff says this, he says, a church careless about holiness is like that. We may care about our people, but we're, 
a danger to them nonetheless. It isn't enough to share the gospel with the lost. We must also be sure that we act in holy ways and teach holiness as a way of life, lest we harm the people of God. So we need to check ourselves. We need to be careful that in our zeal to do the right thing, we don't trample over what God has said. Because God knows best. He knows best, better than our best intentions. The International Missionary Council in Madras, India, 1938, said this, and I think it's timeless. They said, again and again, we've been forced to note that the evils that we face are not the work of bad men only, but of good as well. The gravest of our danger of our disasters have been brought upon us, not by men desiring to make trouble for mankind, but by those who thought they did their best in the circumstances surrounding them. We do not know the man wise enough to have saved the world from its present sufferings, and we do not know the man wise enough, wise enough to deliver us now. Even the best intentions can lead to disaster if they're not informed by the word of God. So even though David and Yuza seem like they have good intentions, bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem, caring about the purity of the ark of God, they neglect what God says, and it leads to disaster. They're careless and inattentive. And as a result, David is afraid to have the ark of God in the city of Jerusalem, and he sends it to the house of Obed-Edom for a time. It leads to disaster. So what can destroy us? What can destroy us is doing sinful things, even if we do them with good motives. So that's the second question. Third and final question, what can unite us? It seems that the moment that David comes on the scene, it seems like he's longing for unity. David defeats Goliath, and after that, it causes Saul to kind of go into this maniacal rage to try to destroy him. And all the while, he tries to reconcile with Saul again and again. He just wants to have peace. He just wants to do what God calls him to do. After Saul is killed, he seeks to have a united kingdom, but Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is fighting against him. Finally, he subdues the Philistines or wins a big battle against the Philistines. Now again, out of fear... Uh, he had sent the ark of God to Obed-Edom. And then when he sees that God is blessing the house of Obed-Edom, again, he calls for the ark of God to be sent to Jerusalem. And as the ark of God comes into Jerusalem, it says in the text that he danced and rejoiced with all of his might. The text notes that he was wearing a linen ephod. Now the text also tells us that David's wife, Michal, is very upset about this. We'll talk about this in a moment, but the passage ends in verse 23 with the notation, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, we don't know for sure why she didn't have a child. It may have been that after this disagreement, David no longer associated with her. It may have been just a natural thing or something that happened. It may have been the judgment of God. But the fact that she had no child indicates something. It indicates that any hope for unity is not going to come through family ties. David and Saul's family are not going to mix. So there's not going to be any hope through family ties. And if we're going to have unity, our hope is not in the natural ties that bind us. 
The natural ties that bind us may be strong, but they also can be broken fairly easily. This is evidenced by the number of divorces and broken families that we see in our country. So if it's not going to be family lines, then what is it that unites us? Now let's look a little bit closer at what David does in this passage in Dancing Before the Lord. His wife states this, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, we don't know if what Michel says is actually true. We don't know that if he was exposing himself in some kind of indecent way when he was dancing or not. The script, scripture kind of indicates that maybe that's not the case because it says he was wearing a linen ephod. And so that would kind of indicate that he maybe perhaps wasn't being indecent in, in his dancing. But we don't know that for sure. But it seems like what's going on beneath the surface is that Michel is concerned at how David conducts himself as a king. Now this dancing is something that is uh, something that kings did not do. In all of the ancient Near Eastern literature that we, that we know about, there's no record of a king ever dancing. People would dance before kings. The king would wear his royal robes. The king would be dignified. The king would be honored. And there would be glory and pomp associated with the king. And Michel, I believe, in essence is saying to David, why do you behave like a vulgar fellow and why don't you behave like a king? Why don't you put on your royal robes and have some decency if you're going to be the king of Israel? But see, David dances before the Lord and in doing that, he proclaims something very important. He says that he'd become even more uh, improper than this, more undignified than this. What he's declaring is that the king serves Yahweh. He's declaring that even himself as a king is in awe and wonder at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he's willing to look foolish as he worships God. So the thing that's going to unite the people of Israel is not family lines, it's not force, it's worship. So what can unite us in worship? How sad is it that in churches oftentimes the things that divide us the most are worship and styles of how we worship God. E. Stanley Jones says, talk about what you believe, you'll have disunity. Talk about who you believe in and you'll have unity. And the scriptures speak of the end times as a time of worship. Look at what the book of Revelations describes in regard to our destiny if we're believers in Jesus at the end of time. Revelations 22, 1-5 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we'll see the face of God. 
there'll no longer be a sun because there won't need to be a sun. God will light up that place. We'll see God face to face. We will worship him. Now, imagine that. Imagine that scene, a new heaven and a new earth where God's glory dwells. And imagine being in that place. And imagine as you're worshiping, you look around and say, hmm, that person doesn't worship right. Hmm, that person, I don't agree with their political views. I didn't, I didn't know that Republicans were going to be in heaven. Or I didn't know that Democrats were going to be in heaven. Or I don't think that person spent their money right when they were on earth. I can guarantee you, we're not going to be doing that. We're not going to be looking here and there. We're going to be looking straight at the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see the face of Jesus Christ, we're going to be overwhelmed to such an extent that it doesn't matter who those other people were. All we know is they're believers. All we know is their fellow worshipers were them. And we'll have that unity in looking together towards Jesus Christ. And we can have that unity even as we're living lives on this earth. As we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, suddenly those differences as we look side to side don't make as much a difference anymore. So as a church, we need to be focused on Jesus. We need to be focused on worship because worship is what can unite us as a people. Graham Kendrick said this. Interestingly, of all the songs in the book of Revelation, not one is a solo. The 24 elders sing and cast their crowns before his feet. The united voices of countless angels resound. Every, every living creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and all that is in them are joined in one song. Those who are victorious over the beast are given harps and a song to sing. In every case, multitudes of people or angels unite in the same song with absolute unity. Worship can unite us. So how do we sum this up? There's a refuge from the chaos around us that's found in delighting in God's presence and worshiping his greatness. That's where we can find rest. That's where we can find peace. Delighting in the fact that his presence is with us. Delighting in the fact that we can call on him anytime, night or day. Delighting in the fact that he's promised he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And worshiping the God who spoke the universe into existence. Worshiping the God who has a plan even in the midst of darkness. That's how we escape the chaos of our present day. There's an old story, a Jewish story that was once told about a four-year-old boy named Mordecai. And uh, his parents were very concerned because Mordecai wasn't interested in learning the Torah or learning Hebrew. All he wanted to do is go and play on the swing set. And every time they tried to get him to learn Hebrew and learn the Torah, he would rebel. And so they were very distressed by this. They took him to a psychiatrist. And after going to the psychiatrist, he left even more angry and lonely and distant from his parents. Then, he took, then the parents took him to a local rabbi, a wise and grace, gracious rabbi. They told him their concerns, poured their souls out to him. 
But without saying a word, he went over to the little boy, to little Mordecai. He took him in his arms and he held him close to his chest, so close that Mordecai could hear the beating of the rabbi's heart. And he held, them, held him there for a moment. And then he gave the child back to his parents. From that point on, Mordecai listened to his parents. He studied the Torah. And when it was appropriate, he also slipped away to play on the swing set. We get close to God. We delight in his presence. When we worship his holiness, we can have peace. Church, God is a refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is a refuge. We can trust in him. We can have rest. We don't have to dwell in the chaos today. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you offer us peace in the midst of the storms. We thank you that we don't have to live in chaos and disorder, that we can delight in your presence, that we can call upon you anytime, night or day, anytime we're in need, Lord. We thank you that we can worship you because you're a God who is great and mighty, a God who redeemed us by the power uh, of, your, uh, of your Holy Spirit, a God who works all things for our good and for your glory, a God who is coming again to bring us to be with you. God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, we would be united as a church in worship. We would be so in awe and overwhelmed by who you are that we would fall down on our knees and the differences that sometimes we have between us would just melt away as we look at your holy presence. In Christ's name I pray, amen.